We're actually coming to the conclusion of our study in the Apostles' Creed, this ancient Christian creed and confession, not written by the apostles themselves, but most of the confession, the creed, was written by those in the generation immediately following the, the, the apostles themselves, deeply rooted in Scripture. We'll be thinking about the last two lines in the creed tonight. Um, and then next week will be, you know, of course, our, our Thanksgiving dinner, so always a fun evening together because some of you guys can legit cook. And, uh, yeah, even if, even if everybody sh- uh, signs up for everything on the sheet and you're like, you go to sign up, and there's, like, not a place for you to sign up for something, just make something that's not on the list. Bring it. It'll be fine. We'll eat it. Um, anyway, make sure you come. It's a good time. So we're wrapping up this study tonight. And we began all the way back in August. And just to review, you know, we... We, uh, we've talked about God the Father and that He is Creator and Lord. We've talked about God the Son and uh, his, his birth, His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His, ascent, his descent to the dead, His ascension, and of course His coming again for us and for our salvation. And uh, we've also talked about since that time, um, talked about the Holy Spirit and the church and uh, forgiveness of sins. These are what we call cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. These are, these are, the, um, these are, the, these are the types of doctrines and beliefs that if a, if a person denies any of these things that we've talked about so far in this creed, it, there's really not a, a real sense in which they can rightly be called a Christian. These are the truths that make a person a Christian. I mean, truths right out of Scripture. Um, they are the very foundation of our faith. And, and again, uh, I think it's a good way to end this semester thinking about having thought about all those things, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and church, and forgiveness of sins, to now end this series thinking about... Um, the future promises for every believer, and, and stated succinctly in the creed as, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's what we're going to think about tonight. According to the Scriptures, we're going to think about it. So open your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin with a short passage at the beginning of 1 John 3, though over the course of our time, as you're probably accustomed to by now, in this series, at least, we're going to think about several different passages. So this will just be a springboard to think about many passages. This is just a good place to start to get our minds thinking in the direction of these truths that we're going to talk about, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So First John chapter 3, and once you've found that place, look with me and follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. First John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. 
Father, this and every other scripture we will turn to tonight is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. As we study the scriptures, your word tonight, would you please, Lord, give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you please give us hearts to embrace and love and see as important and care about these truths? Embrace them and wills to obey what it calls us to do for your glory, for our good. Please give me the help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this passage in particular because it sort of covers the whole spectrum of our salvation. It sort of begins with the love of the Father toward his people in eternity past, that we should be called children of God in Christ in time and space, and looks forward to eternity future, commencing with the second coming of Jesus and the transformation that will take place in us on that day. Um, yeah, what we will be has not yet appeared, but when, when he appears, we know that we will be like him. We'll see him as he is. So, well, the path through, to thinking through these last two lines for us in the Apostles' Creed is pretty, uh, it's pretty straightforward. We're going to think about we're going to think about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's, a, that's how I'm going to break this thing down. I mean, so think about the resurrection of the body first, what that means, when that happens, uh, why it matters, okay? The resurrection of the body, this is a beautiful, beautiful idea, beautiful doctrine, beautiful thing to think about. It's very pertinent, all right? And then we'll take a minute and think about the life everlasting. We'll say a few things about what the Bible says about heaven. I mean, there's Certainly there's a lot more that could be said about heaven than we'll say tonight, but I just want to make a few comments that I think hopefully will help be helpful to our thinking biblically about, about heaven. These are not complicated doctrines to think about, so I, I, they ought to be deeply encouraging to us. We'll say a little bit about each one and then pray for a minute at the end. So let's think about the resurrection of the body first. When the, when the creed says, um, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So what, what is this? Where is it taught in the Bible? Uh, why is it important to confess and believe this? So let's think deeply on it. Um, the Bible is, is, is clear that until Jesus comes again, until the second coming of Jesus, uh, it is destined for every person at some point to die. <laughs> okay? Uh, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and, that, and after that it comes the judgment. The wages of sin is death, right? So not just spiritual death and separation from God, which is fundamental and, and is true, but also physical death. Um, sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, and death came about through that sin. It's not, I mean, in, in fact, Gen Genesis 3 is sin's entrance into the world. Genesis 5, just two chapters later, is one of the most it's one of the more depressing chapters in the whole Bible, Genesis 5. I mean, the whole formula, the practically the whole formula, the whole chapter is modeled after this one formula, just repeated over and over again. It's basically this, so-and-so lived so many years, and then he fathered so-and-so, and after he fathered so-and-so, he had other sons and daughters, and he died. And he died, 
And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's how many times that phrase is found in that chapter. This over and over again. He died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That, I mean, the one bright spot in Genesis 5 is Enoch for the very reason that he didn't die. Like, he was taken by God. He was wrapped, God raptured him, as it were. So until Christ returns, that is the destiny of every person. Um, that we, we're going to die. And the Bible says, and we see it all around us, when, when we die, our body goes into an earthly grave. And while our soul and spirit for the believer goes to be with the Lord. That's, and this is what um, we're talking about before Christ returns. And this is what theologians call the intermediate state. The intermediate state. Intermediate of what? In the middle of what? The time in between what? The time between the time you die and whenever it is that Jesus comes again. That's the intermediate. Uh, so those who die before the Lord returns do go to be with the Lord in spirit, in soul. Those two words are interchangeable with each other. Um, and Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, he says, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So for Paul, the thought of physical death for him meant that his soul went to be with Christ while his body went into a grave. Or think about what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says, But you, talking to believers, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." And to the assembly of the firstborn who are, are, are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's, that's what we have in heaven. The spirits of the righteous made, made perfect. That, that again is true for everyone who dies in the Lord as a Christian by faith, who dies in that period of time, like right now, like before Jesus comes again. There is no waiting period for heaven for that person, right? They are with the Lord before their body ever even goes into a grave. And, 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 and they are with the Lord, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But the Bible doesn't picture that idea of heaven as the final iteration of things. Like that's not the, that's not the final chapter of, of all things. That's not what heaven is forevermore, right? By any stretch of the imagination. The Scriptures make it clear, first of all, that God created us whole people. He created us whole people. Like, like it is that scenario that I just described of you dying and your body going into a grave and your soul going to be with the Lord, that is unnatural. I mean, it's perfect. It's perfect bliss in heaven. But it is an unnatural state because, because you are more than just your soul. You are, you are body and soul. Our body is not some lesser part of us or disposable part of us that we're going to shed for eternity. More on that in just a minute. 
The scriptures, though, both Old and New Testament, promise that a day of resurrection is going to happen. Because that, that being separated soul and, and body is not natural. It's not natural. And so a, a day of resurrection is promised to come when our bodies and our souls will be reunited for all of eternity. That is the final state of things. More on that in a minute also. But even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, there are, there are passages that talk about this coming day of resurrection. It's just prophesied in the Old Testament and, and confirmed in the New. Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So you have... Yeah, your dead shall live. Your, their bodies shall rise. Daniel 12, 2. We talked about this one a few weeks ago. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And you can see there that when the Bible actually talks about the resurrection, it's not just a resurrection of believers. It is a resurrection of all the dead righteous and unrighteous, believing and unbelieving, it's just what happens to them after that point. The righteous, the unrighteous are raised on that day to be judged. The righteous are, are raised to be with Christ forevermore, right? In the, in, well, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Um, but so that, you come to the New Testament, that warning, that warning is also given to unbelievers. Jesus talks about the resurrection and separating the sheep from the goats and the tares from the wheat and the judgment that's going to come on unbelievers. It gives those warnings to unbelievers, but the New Testament is just filled even more so with the hope for believers in the resurrection. We saw it there, um, you know, in, in Daniel, but Acts 24, 15 talks about the beliefs of the earliest Christians that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, one to judgment, the other to life. The, the, the promise for believers, though, is overwhelming. Just think about John 6, where we were this past Sunday morning. Um, over and over again, Jesus said things like this. John 6, 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Very next verse, John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Over and over again. In that one chapter, twice more, Jesus talks about raising us up on the last day. That's just in John 6. He did the same thing in the chapter right before it. Right before it in John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So it's clear a resurrection is coming. I guess the question I suppose is when? When? I've already hinted at this. When is this supposed to happen? Jesus said an hour is coming when this will happen. An hour is coming when they will hear the voice of the Son of Man and, and, and be raised when is it going to happen? And, and the undeniably clear answer given in Scripture is that this is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. This, this resurrection is going to happen when Jesus comes again. And, 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 and when he comes again, the Scripture says, 
that's when the dead in Christ, those who have already died believing in the Lord, they will be raised first when he comes again, right? And then those who are still living at that time, they will be changed in that moment, right? So we see this in a number of places, perhaps most clearly and specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Or Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection will happen of all believers when Christ comes again. But what will, what will we be like? What will we be like when we are raised on that day when Jesus comes again? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about what what we will be like when in that resurrection body. Uh, but it certainly isn't silent on it. I mean, there is a unified message that, of what we are told, that we will be like Christ. That's what it says over and over again. When, we are, when every believer is raised, they will be like Christ. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from it, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject, even to subject all things to himself. Or the passage we began with in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, verse 2. But what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, it's at his coming, when he appears, we shall be like him, right? So when we confess with the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we are confessing our faith in the promises of God in Scripture, not only that Jesus will return, but, that, but also what will happen to us when he does, that we will be raised, we will be like him. Now, I don't know what all of what that means. I don't know all of what it means. I, to, that we, it, I know it doesn't mean that we will all be Christ's. <laughs> it doesn't also mean that we're going to be men like him. No, but at the very least, it means we will be raised with a body just like his in the sense that it is no longer subject to corruption anymore. It's no longer subject to sin. It's no longer subject to sickness or even aging and death. It's not subject to those, um, yeah, those, those decaying aspects of our physical bodies. C.S. Lewis had an imagination better than most, I think it's safe to say. And he took that verse in Isaiah that it says, they shall run and not grow faint. And he, he imagined how possible it might be for limitations that we have now like growing tired and weary and winded right to be 
those not to not to be true of us any longer in the resurrection. He just it, it, he described it as like running, running, and just you realize after you've been running for a while that you're not even tired, you're not even winded. You know, I don't know who knows. All we know is that Paul says he will transform our lowly body here to be like Christ's glorious body. Let me just say something here um, about that. I love the fact that the Apostles' Creed doesn't just express a generic belief in the resurrection. I like the fact that it makes it very explicit. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Of the body. To emphasize the value and the sacredness of our physical bodies. That needs to be said and confessed. Like, we don't live in a culture that impresses that on us. Um, quite the opposite. We, we live in a culture that, by and large, in large swaths, sees our physical bodies as some sort of hindrance to who we really are on the inside. We live in a culture that, that, like, that, that thinks who I really am is who I am on the inside. And it's quite apart from my physical body. And I may have a totally different conception in myself of who I am, and I need to just change my body to fit who I really am. No, no. Um, scripture says that our bodies and our, and our, and our souls are more, much more intertwined than that. Um, we are ensouled bodies. We are embodied souls. And, and God created us that way. He, he created us to be whole in that way, in his image. So our, body, so our bodies are not a nuisance. All right. We aren't meant to hate our bodies. Um, we aren't meant to change our bodies. Like we care for our bodies. We take care of our bodies, right? But even when we die and we are separated from our bodies, it is only for a season until Christ comes again and we are rejoined with a resurrected body. So we are whole in that way for all eternity. God created us whole people, body and soul. We fell whole people into sin. We suffer the consequences consequences of sin as whole people. Sin affects not just our minds and our souls, but our bodies. Jesus came as a whole person. God didn't just have an idea and save us. Jesus physically came to save us. He came as a whole person to save us. And when he comes again, we will be raised whole people for all eternity, whole people, to be with the Lord in life everlasting. Maybe you need to hear that. I don't know. I hope. Let's say a word about life everlasting, though, before we come to a close. We saw in that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that when Jesus comes again and the dead in Christ are raised first and then we who are left will be caught up with him, transformed from our lowly bodies into, like unto his glorious body. So it says, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be be with the Lord. That's when, always. 
but where? Where? Again, for those who die in the Lord before he returns, they go in soul to be with the Lord right away. Scripture calls it heaven, where the Lord is, but that's not the final description of things. The Bible, when the Bible talks about something else that will happen when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes again, one thing that will happen is he will raise us with a resurrected body. That's one thing that will happen when he returns. But the other thing that will happen when he returns is he will bring with him a new heavens and a new earth. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth. That is talked about at the, at the uh, end of Isaiah. If, if you want to, uh, we'll go to a couple of different places here. It's uh, at the end of Isaiah. Um, yeah, 66. Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. Well, he says it in, in, in 65 as well. Uh, well, we'll just, at the end of 66, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall I, your offspring and your name remain, new moon, to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth. But if you go to the very end of your Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, you have a description, in chapter 19 of Revelation, you have a description of the second coming of Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 20, you have a description of the judgment that will ensue at his second coming. And then in the next chapter, in Revelation 21, you have this description. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is, that's Revelation 21.1. And the sea was no more, which I take, I take, there's a lot of talk about the sea, S-E-A, in Revelation. I take that as perhaps figurative of evil oppression. Not that there won't be water in the new heavens and new earth, but I think that's figurative. So there's kind of sea is representative of evil oppression very often in, in Revelation. So I think when it says no more sea, that evil is taken away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this. Prepared as a bride. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem is not a city. You wouldn't describe a city as looking like a bride, but you would describe a people that way. You know, New Jerusalem is, is us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the life everlasting. We don't, we don't need, it's fine, think a lot about heaven, but when you do, don't have some static disembodied picture of heaven, right? Um, don't have like, I think for believers it will be anything but that. Keep in mind that, that this, this isn't, 
what, the, what, you just, what we just read described is not, is not a description of pure whiteness in the clouds. No, what we just talked about was a new earth. You get that? A new earth. And earth and life on it before the Lord, unencumbered and unsoiled by sin. That's what we just read. And there is no biblical reason to believe that life in that place will be boring or that it won't include many of the, thing, the best things we know here. Like, consider what you read. Again, you're probably open to it now in, in, at the end of Revelation 21, verses 24 to 26. By its light, the nations will walk. That's just said the glory of God will be the light in that place. And by its light, the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. I think it's a very safe place. <laughs> and there will be no night there. I think night could perhaps be figurative of evil there. I think we might still sleep and have great naps. I don't know. They will, bring, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of, of the nations. That ain't pure whiteness in the clouds. That feels very physical. There will be believers there from every tribe and language and people and tongue. The nations will be there, and there's no reason to think that on that new earth and the glory of the nations is there. It, there's no reason to think that we won't also in that place work. Work is, not, work is not something that was a consequence of sin. No, God gave Adam to work before sin ever entered into the world. Work just got hard when we sin. I have to believe that in that place we're going to have deeply fulfilling work and we will just be so satisfied by it. We'll be so satisfied in that work, in that place. Herman Bobbing, one of my favorite theologians, describes the idea of eternity this way. He said, uh, he's trying to get us an, an, an analogy of what eternity must be like, time in eternity. And he says a true analogy of it is not the, co the contentless existence of a person for whom as a result of idleness or boredom, grief or fear, the minutes seem like hours and the days don't, do not go, but they creep. No, that's not the analogy. He says, the analogy lies rather in the abundant and exuberant life of the cheerful laborer for whom time barely exists and days fly by. That's awesome. If you, if, if you, if you read... Uh, yeah, flip back to chapter 19 in Revelation. At the, big, at the, the first five verses, excuse me, yeah, well, no, it's, it, later in the chapter, uh, you have, you have the, the, the second coming. What, what do you have, though, beginning in Revelation 19, 6? You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not pure whiteness in the clouds. That is feasting. That's eating and feasting and enjoying uh, meals and each other. I have to believe that in that place there's going to be music and art and sport and color and work and every other good gift that you can, um, you can think of in this place, in that place. 
Not so that we can get caught up in those things, but that all through all of those things, our worship and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ will be through those things much deeper and more pure and more joyful than we have words to express here and now. And it won't ever end. That's the other thing. Nor will we desire it to. Sometimes that's hard for people to wrap their minds around. It's never going to end. But it, sh it shouldn't. It should not. We actually have categories for this. We actually have intuitions like this. I have four children. And any time we go anywhere that is the, even in the remotest way fun, and I tell them these magical words, it's time to go. Five more minutes. Ten more minutes. They beg for just, just a little more time. Why? Because they don't want it to end. They don't want this. They don't want this right here, this experience that I'm having. I don't want it to end. Now, we don't really grow out of it. I mean, you, you may not be much of, of a reader, so if you're not much of a reader, like, you may get this way about a movie sometimes or a TV series. Like, but I, I know that there are some of the best books I've ever read. I did not want them to end. Like, I didn't want them to end. And I, I was, when, 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 the, when, when, the, when it did, I kind of had a book hangover after it. And it was, like, kind of sad. And I didn't want to re read another book after that one, or at least one not at all like that one. I couldn't be content with another one. I, I just really didn't want that to end. Why do we have these little vestiges of I don't want this moment to end? You know? I think it's a longing for eternity that we have in us even when we're little kids. Just five more minutes. It's a longing for eternity in which the highest and the deepest joy imaginable will be ours for a duration that will never end. Nobody's ever going to say it's time to go. It will never end and it's exactly what we will want with all our hearts. It's not just time everlasting. It's life everlasting. And so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words.